What a great day it is to be in the Lord's house. Um, it is good to see all of you this morning. I want to extend welcome to all those that I know. And for those of you that I don't know, uh, hopefully you will stick around after the service. It would uh, be a, a great thing for me to get to know you a little bit. And of course, if you're new, and if you're not uh, new, you are all invited to the Mextra's house uh, this afternoon at 3 p.m. for the, the fall festival. If you don't know how to get there, come find me. I'm happy to give you the address so you can plug it into your GPS. Uh, I promise this to be a time of food and fun and fellowship, and it's really a great way to get to know folks in the church. Um, and so if you're new or you just feel like you don't know folks in the church all that well, uh, it's a great way to get to know um, more people. So, uh, but now let's turn our attention to the Word of God. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, we'll be uh, working, we've been working our way through the letter uh, to the Philippians, and we've been thinking long and hard about Philippians chapter 1, verses 27, which calls us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And so as we come to Philippians chapter 3, We've seen what it is to live a life that is worthy of the gospel in chapters 1 and chapters 2, particularly in the example of Jesus in chapter 2, and then in Timothy and Epaphroditus, uh, which we looked at last week at the very end of chapter 2. And as we apply uh, all that we've learned so far and uh, as we pursue the Lord, it's really easy to slip from striving into earning. Uh, to move from grace into works. And so Paul cautions us to be mindful of dif the difference. So let's read uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It is on the screen behind me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, for, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have uh, reason for confidence in the flesh also. For if anyone thinks anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, as we come uh, to your word this morning, we are a bunch of folks that seek to come to you by works. Lord, we, uh, it's just natural for us to, to try hard and to, to trust in ourselves. 
But Lord, as we look at your word, I pray that you would expose that in us, that we would see just where our confidence in the flesh leads us. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us by the power of your gospel to trust in you, to place our confidence in you, and to rejoice knowing that we have a righteousness that comes from our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so uh, let me start this morning by sharing something uh, from way back when I was in high school uh, that I said to someone. I'm not going to tell you who I said it to, but I, I, I said this to somebody. And this person was facing a fairly big personal crisis at the time. And uh, so uh, to sort of help this person along, I said, uh, this wouldn't have happened to you if uh, you were walking rightly with the Lord. There was probably some sin in your life that you didn't confess. Ooh. Not very helpful and definitely heretical. So probably shouldn't have said that. But at the time, I had bought into this idea that our walk with the Lord depends on us. Right? That God would bless us if we were obedient and he would punish us if we sinned. And obviously, I was pretty uh, confident in my own righteousness at the time to be able to lay that kind of guilt trip on this person. Um, but as we sort of dig into my high school heretical theology, I would have said that I believed that salvation came through Jesus. But practically speaking, I had to follow the rules and obey the law as well. And so, uh, Back in high school, I was a little Judaizer. I would have felt fit right in with the Judaizers that Paul is addressing here in Philippians chapter 3. And the Judaizers were folks that thought that Christians uh, were required to become Jews and submit to the Mosaic law in addition to believing in Christ Jesus. And so they taught that salvation came through Christ plus obedience to the law. And so again, I would have fit right in. With them. Unfortunately for me, for high school me um, and for the Judaizers, we were wrong. <laughs> Boy, are we wrong. And Paul has some really harsh words uh, for me and my Judaizer sympathizers, right? And some words of caution for the rest of the, the church with regards to people like me. And so let's look at verses one through three. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the, the, who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so, which of the two groups do you think Paul puts me in? Yep, that's me right in verse 2. Uh, the dog, the evildoer, and the mutilator of the flesh. And Paul picks these terms deliberately. The word dog here is the same word that the Jews would have used to refer to the Gentiles with disdain. And so uh, these folks that insisted that Christians become Jews were themselves not really Jews, but rather Gentiles, as Paul puts it, people outside of the covenant. And so we see a lot of irony, and the irony sort of continues. Because remember, the Judaizers were big on obedience and righteousness under the law. But with the next breath, Paul calls them evildoers, that those who say that do, they're doing right are in fact doing evil. And then circumcision, which was a big badge of uh, pride for the Judaizers. They thought it was, uh, 
it was the mark of inclusion for uh, God's people, people, the mark of the covenant, um, so to speak. But because of their theology of Jesus plus law, it no longer becomes a mark of blessing and a mark of the covenant, but becomes a mark of destruction. That really all they're doing is mutilating the flesh, mutilating the body for their own twisted sense of righteousness. And so it's pretty straightforward. We can see how and why Paul is so harsh on these people. But why the name calling? Why the insults? And I think that it's because Paul understands intimately that their path toward righteousness doesn't lead to where they think it will lead but rather it leads to destruction and to sin. And so Paul crushes them by meeting them on their own turf, saying, so to speak, okay, you want to talk about obedience to the law and righteousness that leads to salvation? Great. Let's talk about it, because I'm the poster child of your movement, and it doesn't work. So let's talk about me, that is Paul, real quick in verses 4 to 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this is, this is a great passage. I love this passage because Paul is literally flexing on these people, right? He's beating them at their own game. And so let's check out Paul's sort of Judaizer resume. He's got the bloodlines, Israelite, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's got a rich heritage of obedience from his parents, too, since he was circumcised on the proper day. So not only is he obedient in himself, he's got a whole heritage of obedience, that he comes from a long line of obedience. And he's also got exclusive club membership in that he was a Pharisee who were the power brokers of the day and were famous for their scrupulous keeping of the law. And then he's also got his own adult obedience since he was blameless before the law as far as we could tell. And it's not just sort of this external show of obedience, but that he's really sold out for obedience to the law. He's sold out for the Pharisees. He's so zealous um, that he went after the Christian church because he saw them as a bunch of lawbreakers. And so in, in essence, Paul is saying, I'm the goat when it comes to... Uh, to your way of doing things. I'm the best there is. I am the greatest of all time. No one can do it better than me. And since this is scripture, we know it's true, right? We know that at the very top of obedience is Paul when it comes to righteousness before the law, you know, apart from Jesus, of course, right? So he's the pinnacle of works righteousness. He's the greatest of all time. And while people can say, like, you know, there's always somebody better out there, Paul is like, no, there really isn't. I'm the best. And he's right. And so Paul isn't really tooting his own horn here. Why? Because literally after he's finished with his resume, he says it's nothing. And why? Why does he cast away all of his achievements and his works? Because in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, it's nothing to, to Paul. That's verses seven to eight. And it's so important that he repeats himself. These good things aren't good, but they're loss. Here we get the famous verse that uh, compares his good works and works righteousness to a bad word for poop. Uh, but it's much, much worse than that. 
You see, the comparison really isn't one of degree. It's, Paul isn't saying, look at me, I was so good, but Jesus is the best. No, Paul, isn't, Paul is saying that his very good works are wholly different than what he has with Jesus. So much so that his good works are in fact bad for him. And so did you catch that language of gain and loss? It means that Paul thought that which was good was in fact losing for him. That it was not going forward, but going backward. And so to chase good works for salvation is to pursue loss, to go into debt, to go into the negative, to go into the red. And so how can good things be bad? How can doing good things be bad? Well, any good thing elevated beyond its proper place can become bad or sinful. And as Paul was accumulating all of these spiritual credentials, what was the purpose of this so-called righteousness? Was it to glorify God? Nope. The righteousness that Paul would have had would have been a righteousness built on himself and what he had done. And so that means that his self-righteousness would have been all about Paul, would have been all about himself, about his glory, his reputation, his obedience. It's all about him. And so can you hear what he's going after? Maybe it goes something like this. Oh, look at Paul. He's so righteous. He's so godly. He always does the right thing. Look at that. That there is a godly man. I should listen to him and follow him because he is going to point me to God. And, you know, if Paul were here today, we would have thought of him as a godly man as well because he seemed to care deeply about God's law, which is a good thing in most contexts. But do you see how sort of subtly Paul is building up his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom? Do you see how he's building up his own glory rather than God's glory? And so God, Paul's godliness really doesn't have to do anything with God himself. Really, it has everything to do with Paul. And that building up of himself in itself is sinful. You can't love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love others as yourself if your whole way of life is about you. And it's really the exact opposite of what we've been seeing in the previous chapters in Philippians. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus, who was righteous through and through, didn't stand upon that righteousness as we talked about in chapter 2, but he took it off and laid it down that he might become one of us and then go to the cross and die on a cross. Rather, he has become, he, 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 he is the humble servant. And so even though he was righteous, it was never about Christ. He is the embodiment of the command to count others as more significant than yourself. Even though he has every right to make it about him. And so where does all of Paul's righteousness leave him? Where does the Judaizer path lead? It leads to sinfulness. And so the greatest of all time when it comes to spiritual credentials becomes the greatest of all time of sinners. The chief of sinners, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy. And so really, all of these achievements, all of these good works, to call it rubbish or to call it poop or to call it even a bad word for rubbish or poop is probably too nice still. Because our good works that lead to self-righteousness are not good in any way. 
Rather, they're deceptive because they bring a righteousness that is actually sinful. It's much, much worse. Paul is actually saying nice things about his good, good works. But there's really another way, right, to, to, to live life. Paul doesn't just leave us with the fact that the Judaizer way is wrong. Rather, he directs us to Jesus. And so remember, repentance isn't just turning away from sin, but also turning unto righteousness. And the righteousness that we want isn't our own, but Christ's. And so let's look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so while confidence in the flesh is lost, Paul gains Christ through faith in him. And why is that? Why does he gain Christ? It's because we get God himself in the gospel. That's what it means to be found in him, to know Christ Jesus. And so Paul here is referring to his union with Christ. And as many of you know, I tell the youth that the the gospel comprises of at least three things, that the very core of the gospel is three things. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's, uh, our union with Christ. And so Christ wins for himself righteousness and resurrection life on the cross and on that first Easter Sunday. And then all that he has, the glory beyond compare, the name that is above every name, the righteousness that is undeniable, all of that becomes ours when we are united to him. You see, our union with Christ is everything for us. And so think about the disparity between Judaizer righteousness on the one hand and gospel righteousness on the other. So we've got my glory, right, my righteousness that I could achieve on my own versus the glory of God of the universe, right? The maker of heaven and earth. The Lord of lords, the king of kings, the commander of the hosts of heaven, right? It's really not a comparison. And in a lot of ways, as we think about the difference, my good works versus the source of all righteousness and goodness, chasing after my own righteousness seems kind of stupid now, right? It's like settling for mud pies, as as C.S. Lewis puts it, when we could have had a vacation by the sea, right? We are too easily satisfied. I've got my puny righteousness over here versus God's righteousness that is offered to me in Christ Jesus. And how often do I chase after myself? It's just dumb. I'm dumb. And most of you know that because I can't spell bed, right? But like, we're like, such is the folly of human, humanity and fallen in our fallenness, right? We choose ourselves versus God. And so it's not just that God's glory and righteousness is far better than ours, because chasing our own righteousness is a trap. Our own righteousness is really no righteousness at all, but is in fact sinful. But in him, we do not receive a righteousness that is our own, but it comes from God. And so really, when we receive God, we're no longer settling for a lie, but I am now doing what I was meant to do all along. Remember, I was made for God. I was made to be in relationship with him. And I was made, in fact, to enjoy his glory. 
to enjoy his very presence. And so I get to enjoy his glory rather than be hungry for my own, which is what we talked about a number of weeks back, of being hungry for glory. But what does it look like to be found in Christ? What does it look like practically to put my confidence in the Lord Jesus instead of myself? Well, I think it looks like all of the things that we've been talking about in Philippians, to live a life worthy of the gospel, to consider others more significant than ourselves, to be in a full accord and with one mind with your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. In short, it's to embody Christ. In short, it's to embody Christ. We are not our own after all, but belong body and soul to Jesus. And we're being conformed into his image, and that image is one of service and sacrifice. And so externally, it looks like giving up of a lot of earthly things for the sake of being obedient to the calling which Christ has called us to, to be humble, to serve, to sacrifice, ready to suffer for the sake of knowing Christ. So look with me at the last two verses verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, that's our desire, to share in his sufferings that we might share in his resurrection. We do this because we want to become like him. And so the image that we are being conformed to is one of a suffering servant, one who suffers that he might give grace and through grace bring life and resurrection. And so, friends, we have been crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in us. And thus, our confidence can't be in ourselves because we're dead. Right? Our confidence comes from the resurrection life that Christ has given to us. But again, how do we do this? How do we move from a confidence of flesh to a confidence in Christ? And I think it looks a lot like repentance. What we're doing is turning from confidence in our own flesh and turning unto the Lord. And so when we turn from uh, confidence in our own flesh, we do what Paul did. He counts all things as loss in order that we, he might gain Christ. And so we do the same thing. And counting is an active uh, activity, right? That we uh, are taking and considering all that we have as gain, all that confidence that we have as loss. And this active thing we often call the mortification of the flesh. We're actively looking for areas where we're trusting in ourselves, being ruthless in turning those areas over to Christ. And so it's a tireless, ceaseless process that seeks out and reveals sinful self-righteousness and self-confidence, and then turning unto Jesus in our joy. So we're turning away by being ruthless to our sins. But we're turn when we turn to Jesus, do we see the wonder and the wonder and majesty of the Lord Jesus? Do we see that it is unmatched and that it is in fact what we desire? Do we rejoice as we gaze upon our Savior and Lord? And do we have a good view of Jesus or do we and do we look upon him often? Do we dig into our relationship with Christ as we would with some of our best friends and with our family members, seeking to know them better even when we know them well? We can't do this if we're not spending time with him, if we're not beholding him, if we're not taking advantage of the usual means of grace of 
reading our Bibles and fellowshipping and worshipping with other believers, coming to Sunday morning worship. You see, Christ is life for us. He's the one who enables us to have a righteousness that is not our own. He is the one of surpassing worth. And so the question really is, is he that for you and for me? And so, lest we sort of sit in abstract, sort of talking about confidences, which we often don't have a lot of control over, let's sort of think about one of the ways in which I, Frank, am confident in the flesh so that we can work through it together, that we can apply the gospel together in that, that you guys can, um, you all can keep me accountable by calling out my confidence in the flesh. And friends, the confidence in the flesh that I wrestle with most often isn't a work of righteousness, but rather a rightness of my works. And I don't think I'm the only one that struggles with this. That, that really my confidence is that I'm right. Like 99% of the time, right? I think I'm right. And I think it's a pretty prevalent confidence in our culture. Think about uh, the confidence, the sureness, the sort of condescension that often comes out of the mouths of believers and unbelievers alike. You can flip on the news to any channel and you're assaulted by people who who wholeheartedly believe in the rightness of their beliefs and views. And social media is probably worse as folks sort of pop off on rants and are confident both in their rightness and in the positive reception that they will receive from others online as well. But for me, my rightness comes in the form of assumptions. I assume that folks in my life will see things the same way that I do. That I assume that I have the best judgment. I assume that I'm right and that I'm doing things the best way that they can be done and so they should be done my way. And where does it lead me? It leads me to pride and selfishness. It leads me to domineer and to run over people all the time. (laughs) And it's often hard for me to just shut my trap and to simply listen to learn or understand. And so it really does make me prideful and harsh a lot of the time. It's certainly not the gentle, kind, loving husband, father, or pastor that I ought to be, that I actually hope to be. And so let's put, it, let's put this in gospel terms. Does my pride and confidence in my rightness sound like humble ser- the humble service that the Lord Jesus gave to sinners like me? Does my pride and confidence reflect the Lord Jesus? Well, no. Do I listen to those with different opinions? Do I love them in spite of what I think is their wrongness? And even if I am right, do I trust in my rightness or do I trust in my Lord? And most of the time I trust in me. And I'm willing to bet that you're right there with me. Though, of course, I may be wrong, right? Can't be too confident. But let's think through how I might root out this confidence in the flesh in my rightness. Well, maybe it might be begin, I might begin by intentionally seeking to challenge my own preconceived notions and committing to listen far more than I speak. 
Perhaps it's by intentionally cultivating relationships with people that I disagree with. To spend time with sinners, in my view, so to speak, as Jesus did, and to love them in spite of it all. But I think the majority of my response ought to be to look ever more closely at Jesus as a whole. Because often, I often focus on one or another of Jesus's attributes, his holiness or his gentleness, his devotion to the truth or his righteousness, really to the exclusion of others. And as, we, as I or we focus on that one aspect of Jesus, that, that aspect, that attribute can grow out of proportion to the rest of the whole. And so some folks focus on Jesus's love, but forget his righteousness and holiness. Some folks focus on Jesus's holiness and righteousness and not enough on his gentleness and care. We want all of Jesus, the whole package. And I want to love Jesus and, the, and I want to love the things that he loves in the order that he loves them which means that I want my priorities to reflect his priorities. I want to, to, to have all of his characteristics, not just some of them. And so what I want to see, I think the best way that we can sort of turn away from our confidence of, in the flesh is to have a right view of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is so glorious, so wonderful, so captivating that it just crowds everything else out. Christ must increase and I must decrease. But when Christ increases, I decrease naturally. Why? Because I'm not looking at myself, but I'm looking at him. And here's the best part. That in Christ, we've already begun this process. And in the midst of it, he's with us always. He's there when we mess up and run back to the flesh. He's there when we try to be like him and forget to love as we call out sin. He's there when we compromise when we shouldn't. He's always there working out his faith in us that we might share in his sufferings and be transformed by his grace into the resurrection life that he promises. And so we know this. We know that he is there with us, that he is not going to just leave us alone in the confidence of flesh, but that he is going to chase us down and subdue us, that he's going to make us trust in him. Why? Because he loves us. And we know that because he calls us to himself through the cross, right? Where do we see without a shadow of a doubt that he is for us and that he will love us to the end no matter what we do, no matter what we put our confidence in? We see it at the cross. And so, knowing that we forget, knowing that we turn from our confidence in God and turn to confidence in ourselves all the time, what does he do? He reminds us through his table, through his supper. He reminds us to declare our confidence in Christ and not ourselves through these elements that we can touch and taste. He says, Come and confess that we are sinners desperately in need of grace. And he says, come and taste and see that I am good. That I am far better than you could ever possibly be. That I've already done it for your sake. Have confidence and be not afraid that the Lord God has saved us and transformed us by his grace. That we might rejoice in the righteousness that comes from him. Why? For we have him.
we have been united to him. And so we have confidence in him. Let's pray. Father God, I confess that even though I'm preaching on confidence in you, that I don't have confidence in you nearly as much as I should. That I turn from you time and again, and I know each one in this room does that just the same. But Lord, you have made us alive in you and that you have saved us by grace through faith in you. And so, Lord, we ask that that grace, that mercy would transform us and transform our desires, our confidences, our trusts, transform us wholly and completely that we might reflect you, that we would rejoice in the confidence of knowing that we have a righteousness that is not our own and that we are not our own either, but that we belong mind and soul, body and spirit to you, our Lord Jesus, who is our righteousness, who is our confidence, who is really our everything. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.